Hesedim is a series of reflection, usually reflecting on an issue in the society in the light of the words of scripture. You're welcome to join us each time and to send your questions or comments by way of a voice note. Look forward to hearing you and speaking with you. I return to the subject of wholeness in order to respond to a question that has been raised about how can moral wholeness be achieved in that all of us fail morally in so many ways. In order to reflect upon this question, I would like to read for you a parable that Jesus told recorded in Luke chapter 18. The parable goes as follows. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax, tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exhort themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. One of the things that is made clear by this parable Jesus told is that moral wholeness is not the same as moral perfection, which is itself an elusive goal. An imperfect person whose moral failing is well known can still achieve a wholeness that a person who perform feats that cross all T's and dot all I's, in moral terms, does not. This is implied in the statement that Jesus made and the assessment that Jesus gave at the end of the parable. Jesus says, I tell you, the man who said, God have mercy on me, a sinner, went to his home justified before God. The other man did not. From God's point of view, Moral wholeness has everything to do with the bent of our hearts, the approach we take to our moral duty before God that is both accountable to God and dependent on God's grace and mercy. By contrast, those who become self-assured and self-congratulatory and become too confident in their own moral achievements and moral record are greatly at risk are proceeding in a direction that will not leave them justified before God. The parable of Jesus that we are considering in order to determine where wholeness in moral terms comes from and brings, toge brings together two social opposites in the Jewish society. On the one hand, there is a religious leader numbered among the elite of the society. 
his religion is entirely focused on himself. For this, he is extraordinarily punctilious. By his own account, he was conscious of his moral superiority. His was the righteousness that is based on better than, other than, and more than other people. I am not like other people, he says boastfully, all the while he's praying to God Almighty. We should never boast when we speak to God. We should not congratulate ourselves, leave such congratulations to God. Nevertheless, the verdict that this man offers to God of himself is consistent with the verdict that the rest of the society passes on people like him. We give people like this Pharisee a pass. His com he completes his resume by a list of his religious tasks and duties that he performs. He tithes. Notice he doesn't say he gives because the focus is not on the offer of acts of random kindness that he makes, but on the religious pres prescription that he follows. And then he says he, that he fasts, not that he denies himself to give to the poor or that he fasts in protest against injustice and wrong. His fast is a religious abstraction that he performs, a ritual cleansing of himself. His morality is self-centered and self-serving and not oriented to making the community a better place. On the other hand, there is the tax collector. He was a key functionary in the system of oppression of the common people. He had sided with the Roman occupation of the land and the Roman oppression of the people. He was empowered to extract revenues from the people to prop up the Roman Empire at the people's expense. The tax collector was a central figure in the revenue chain. As such, the tax collector was held with odium and contempt in the eyes of the people. As if that were not bad enough, tax collectors were swindlers. They were un as unaccountable as Roman oppression itself was. They took advantage of the people, made up penalties and interest, and engaged in all manner of unfair calculations at the people's expense. We remember the more notorious tax, tax collector, Zacchaeus. He declared that if he had robbed anybody, he would repay fourfold. It was what they did. If the Pharisee came well recommended and could write recommendations for others, the tax collector was disreputable and not recommended at all. What we see in this parable, however, is the difference in their humanity. When you listen to their prayers, you could see what was in their hearts. The Pharisee came across as pompous and superior, self-congratulatory, boastful and self-righteous. I'm not like others, not even this tax collector. A righteousness and a morality of the more than and the better than and the other than is no morality at all. The tax collector, this disreputable man, came through as contrite and sincere. He was a known quantity. He did not try to hide or to be or to say anything else. He did not have a word to say in comparison or condemnation of anyone else. He simply said of himself, I am a sinner. When you listen to the Pharisees talking to God, 
You could not help but believing that God owed the Pharisee something. When you listened to the tax collector, you knew that he needed God. He said, have mercy on me, O God. So here are the takeaways to achieve moral wholeness. The first is to be honest. Prayer is addressed to an audience of one. Prayer is, an, is not an elocution contest to see who can use the most or the finest words. When we come to prayer, we should not try to say too much. Where words are many, evil is not far away. Rather, we should be as straightforward as possible and get to the point. God knows what is in our hearts anyway. So we may as well not beat around the bush. That is what the psalmist means when he said God desires truth in the inward parts. We may as well be completely honest and sincere. In his honesty, the tax collector calls himself a sinner. To call oneself a sinner is to say of oneself what God has already said of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Also, to call oneself a sinner is to make a true overall assessment of one's life. A sinner is a person who has missed the mark. It is therefore to admit that we have missed our mark. It is not it does not compare itself with others. It compares itself with the mark that God has set for us, the goals. And a person may do well in life, but still not have realized his full potential. We can do better. And if we are truthful in many ways, we have done miserably. I am a sinner is admitting to yourself what you know about yourself. Others may not see it or know it, but you know it. The dark secrets, the failing, the thoughts that are unbecoming, the greed and avarice and covetousness. It is an honest accounting. If we are going to achieve wholeness in moral terms, it has to be built on a rigorous personal honesty with God and with ourselves. Secondly, moral wholeness relies on God's mercy. The Pharisee boasted of his record. He, recommending him, he recommended himself. It is always a mistake when facing God or the future to be too confident in one's own record. We have seen with our, with our most recent experiences, history is capable of such surprises that can shatter any strength or wisdom or certainty that we may have. It is only by God's grace and mercy that we survive from day to day. The Epistle of James put it, puts it this way, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This plea to God for mercy is not only about our past record, but it is also for the sake of our future prospects. We ask God for mercy so that our moral choices and decisions may be guided by God's mercy. In that way, we will not make false choices between our prospects for survival and our values, our principles, and our ideals. 
We pray for mercy so that we do not make false choices between our long-term interests and our short-term benefits. We pray for mercy so that we do not make false choices between our duty to our neighbor the poor and our prospects for material gains. We pray for mercy because we are aware of how fragile and how frail and how fickle our own actions and decisions tend to be. The fact that our egos get in the way, our need for popular approval gets in the way, and how limited the quality of our assessment of things that face us tend to be. Thirdly, to achieve wholeness in moral terms, we must approach life with a vigorous honesty and utmost reliance on God's mercy, and we must approach life with a constructed, deliberate, and characteristic humility. We have to walk humbly. When both men had finished praying and Jesus had announced his assessment of each of them, he left us this little aphorism for us to remember. He said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I have had to remind myself recently that this is not so much a message to send to other people that I pick out as it is a warning to myself. Humility has to become a way of life. Because we fail, so let us give ourselves, let us not give ourselves too much credit. Because others are capable of such monstrous evil and sometimes the system appears to have an overwhelming and invincible will. Be humble enough to learn lessons from life and to benefit from the advice of others and to be a creature and a student of history. You do not know as much as you think you know. And at any rate, as much as you think you know, it is of what is past that you know. The future can only be known when it happens. Be humble because life is capable of surprises and it exists for others as much, much more than it exists for us. The future belongs to the meek and the humble. Three things are not worthwhile goals when you want to be made whole. Ego, power, and domination of others. All are pyrrhic victories that will cost you more than they gain you. So let us be honest. Let us rely on God's mercy. And let us walk humbly. And so find wholeness of self and relationship. Amen. Thanks for this, Reverend Roper. Um, the message with the call to honesty, dependence on God and humility reminds me of Isaiah 6, in which the prophet worshipped God, saw his own unclean lips, was cleansed as a result of God's actions through the seraphim, and only then did he hear the call for mission, in other words, to go and do God's work. So, so yeah, the, the call to honesty, dependence on God and humility um, resonates as really what it means to be morally whole. That's how Isaiah became morally whole. Eh? Thanks. Bye. Also reminds me of Isaiah, sorry, Micah 
6 verse 8, what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And the message version says, don't take yourself too seriously, but take God seriously. Real humility. My friend Garnet, good morning. Again, I really enjoyed this morning's piece on the question of moral wholeness. And I appreciate the reminder that moral wholeness is not the same as perfection. You know, perfection gives us the idea that you have reached somewhere. And having reached there, there is no need to go anywhere further. And the quest for moral wholeness reminds us that it is just that, a quest, that we're on a journey towards fully integrating our humanity in light of our relationship with God. And so that journey, as you remind us, is one of truth in the inward path. I do love, you know, the, the while the King James Version may not be the most accurate of translations and so on, but there are just some beautiful and interesting turn of phrases that uh, get at some of what we're trying to grasp after recognizing that the very language that we use reveals as much as it conceals, you know, but the notion of truth in our inward parts, I think is a notion that jumps out at me from what you have shared with us this morning, the whole notion of being truthful inside oneself to oneself, recognizing how truthfulness has to make us honest in the face of how often we miss the mark and that we continue to miss that mark. And the call to recognize that missing of the mark is not to be seen in comparison to another, but that each of us is on a journey, this quest for inward wholeness, vis-a-vis our relationship with God, and that we must be seized individually at all times around the false choices that we make around our frailty, around our fragility as human beings, about the limited nature of our ability to assess who we are and what we do and the true value or lack thereof of some of the choices that we make. And that that whole call that you make to us about a certain kind of humility, which should call us to pray for mercy in the face of this quest towards truth in the inward part. And, 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 and that's going to be what reverberates with me for the rest of the week, this call to truth in the inward part, this call towards fullness of moral wholeness as a human person. At the same time, I like the charge around always taking account of and being a true student of history. You know, if we don't pay attention to history, we're doomed to repeat it. Where I want to challenge you to give me some more food for reflection, I'd love to hear your response to the pushback that I'm going to make on the assertion around a future that belongs to the meek and the humble. Because as a student of history, my study of history does not show me that the meek and the humble are the victors in history. What I see and read of history 
that is a history of the proud, of the powerful, of the dominant. I belong to, I am a descendant of a group of the so-called meek and humble. I am part of a gender that is considered to be meek and humble and less than, and particularly nurturing. And I could go on to, the, to speak through the various lens that are part of this identity that I have as both woman, Jamaican, Christian, theologian, however I want to um, frame my identity as a singular individual who is always recognizing the, the how far I fall short and miss that mark. Help me to wrestle with how I treat with my reading of history that shows me that history is not about the meek, is not about the humble, is not about those who remain subservient or below, but the history that I have to wrestle with day in, day out, is a history where people of my descent will, my descent, my uh, cultural and social, socio-economic origins will remain among those who lose. God bless you. Have a great week. I know that you will come back at me with a reflection that will enrich my way of understanding and living in the world. Bless you. Amen. Hi, Anna. If I say I'm glad I know you, right? And I'm effusive. Please forgive me. I suppose all your life you're, you're kind of used to that. Men in one way or the other fawning, right? But you're just brilliant and keen. Um, and critical thinker. So, so the way I would like to locate the pushback, and I, I, you're right, I'm going to come to it more fulsomely down the road. But I have to come to it, as you know, when I come to it. I would like to frame it as the sufferer children of Jah, right? And to connect the pushback on whether or not the future belongs to the meek and humble. And part of the struggle we have in articulating what that means is what our concept of the future belonging ought to mean. Because we tend to mean by that that it is the, the, the meek and the humble will become the rulers and power brokers of the future, which really is almost... Um, counterintuitive, right, or contradiction in terms or oxymoron, depending on how you prefer to style it. What I think it means, let's just use Mr. George Floyd and Mr. Derek Chauvin, right? So here is a man proudly with his knee on the throat of another man as powerful as powerful could be. And he not only stayed there until he had killed him, but waited two and a half minutes until he had stopped breathing. And everybody knows, and his face, his attempt to use pepper spray, shows a man who is utterly kinfolk to the White House. This is power pure and simply, naked and unvarnished and unchecked.
But where is he today? Tell me which of his children would walk around with a picture of him proudly displaying it. He is to be regarded as he ought to be with odium and contempt. What he used there as a show of force and power has no future as his own lot. And all those, whether James Barr, Donald Trump, the Boogaloo squad, all of the right-wing minions, the Mitch McConnells, will soon come to discover. Power used for its own sake does not have a long life. On the other hand, we're really talking about vindication and we're talking about viability and we're talking about a resilience, a strength of character, a resistance that meekness and humbleness give you. When you are free of your ego, and when you are free of this sense of needing to dominate or to be more than, other than, and better than everybody else, you really don't know how tremendously you do liberating it is what i mean by it it is far more liberating than its alternatives and so that's how i'd like to frame it now i have to come back to the question i have the gender question to come back to and i have this to come back to but for the moment the future about which i'm speaking is vindication Allah psalm 73 the future about which I'm speaking is in terms of the tables turning, the great reversal of fortunes, as Lazarus and Richman was to dis- were to discover. And the future I'm talking about is what makes sense. Driving in the back of your pickup and shooting a black man like a bird gives you no future. Yes, it kills him. And so, to that extent, he dies, but we all die. But his name will not live in infamy, as will be the names of those who kill him. I will come back to it. But thank you so much for the interaction and reflection.